Alright, if I'm going to host a movie podcast every week, at some point or another, I'm going to have to talk about the Oscars. Now, uh, I am hardly the first person to talk about how the Oscars are pretty terrible at uh, predicting which films have uh, long-standing cultural longevity. I mean, yeah, every now and then they get it right, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, one best picture, but there are plenty of other examples of them dropping the ball, you know, Greatest Show on Earth, uh, Oliver, a bunch of other things you haven't heard of for good reason. That being said, the Oscars are useful in that they reflect what the Academy, which is, you know, composed of actors and uh, industry insiders, uh, considers to be an important representation of what they do. Uh, it is a sign of the thing they made that they are proud of. And what they pick as that selection year after year is a reflection of the times we live in and how um, society produces its art. With that, I have decided to take a look at one of the many Best Picture winners that have since been thrown into the dustbin of history. In this case, the Broadway Melody, which came out in 1929 and won Best Picture at the second annual Academy Awards. This film is uh, very interesting in how much of a footnote it's become, because not only is it one of the first Best Picture winners, but it's the first sound film to do it, and it's one of the earliest sound films, period. It's also, if you don't count The Jazz Singer, the first movie musical, and uh, it was the first movie musical produced by MGM, which kicked off their decades of, um, of high-end uh, uh, movie musicals, which were a huge uh, box office uh, draw throughout basically the golden age of Hollywood, which most people place at roughly the end of the silent era to about the advent of television in the 1950s. So, you know, a pretty important period in terms of cinema history. So I will be breaking down the plot of this film as I usually am and just sort of going into why it's uh, sort of been completely forgotten despite all of the things that have come directly in its in its wake. My name is Ryan. It's a real deep dive. Now, the plot of this film is very simple. If you're familiar with uh, old-timey music, movie musicals, you have seen a whole lot of variations of this. It's your basic, let's put on a show movie. Uh, it concerns uh, Eddie Kearns, played by Charles King. He is a, uh, a Broadway songwriter who brings in the Mahoney sisters to uh, perform the title song in his new musical. Uh, the Mahoney sisters are composed of uh, Hank, who is the confident business lady, and she is engaged to Eddie. And then there's her little sister, Queenie, that uh, sets the tone in this is that once Eddie um, meets Queenie again, he mentions that, you know, she was a little girl when he first saw her, but boy, she sure has grown. And uh, yeah, that grossness is going to come back. Now, the Mahoney sisters have an Uncle Jed, who has been booking them throughout shows throughout, you know, Heartland America, your Indiana, Ohio, so on and so forth. But they've decided to uh, give it a whirl, try to try to take a swing in the big leagues in, uh, on Broadway, New York. Now, the Mahoney sisters uh, audition for, the, uh, for singing the title song, but they are sabotaged by a uh, jealous showgirl who leaves a bag in their piano. This leads to their, leads to their number being cut, but... Uh, Queenie, by sheer happenstance, becomes a last-minute replacement for an injured singer. Her performance captivates uh, J uh, Jock Warner, who is this 
infamous slimy playboy that uh, Queenie with her simple uh, young uh, small town girl uh, naivete just falls right under his spell. Now a couple of scenes later uh, Eddie comes in and uh, performs a uh, song for uh, Queenie, You Were Meant For Me, and at the end of it he starts creeping on Queenie saying that you know he no longer loves her sister that he, he loves her and uh, this scares the crap out of Queenie and she in the film's internal logic, Queenie actually loves Eddie too, although there's been no overtures towards that, but Queenie definitely doesn't want to hurt Hank, so she starts spending more time with this uh this skeezy jock guy. However, Hank, she's uh she's she's hurt by this, obviously, but uh eventually she realizes that Eddie has true love for Queenie. Uh that uh, results in most notable scene from an acting perspective, which isn't saying much for this film, but uh, she goes on this monologue about how she claims that she only dated Eddie to advance her career and um, just sort of pushes uh, him away from her. And as soon as he leaves, she, uh, she sort of breaks down sobbing. It's one of those laughs that turns into cries. And uh, it is the closest thing uh, to a genuine human emotion of any sort in this film. Uh... Hank then decides to uh, take up uh, Uncle Jed's offer to, uh, you know, perform in the series of shows throughout the Midwest. Now, Eddie runs down to win Queenie over, and uh, he ends up jumping in on the uh, very handsy Jock at a loud party. Uh, he tries to physically confront Jock, but, you know, Jock just sucker punches him with uh, one of those really bad movie punches where, you know, uh, it, it sort of grazes his chin, but there's a there's a loud sound effect and he just falls through the door. This wins over Queenie, who uh, who leaves with Eddie. We then see uh, Eddie and Queen, uh, Queenie return from their honeymoon. Uh, Queenie has decided to, uh, retire from show business and be a good old housewife, which is par for the course for something that came out during this period. Uh, Hank has, uh, has, uh, moved on, and she is doing a review, uh, uh, going out on the road with, uh, the lady who threw the, uh, threw the bag and the piano and sabotaged the act to begin with, you know, because we're all wondering how, how things turned out with her. And, uh, that's the film. Yeah, as I can... As you probably already sorted out, uh, this film is more interesting from a production standpoint and uh, from any uh, than anything that happens in actual plotting. Uh, as I said before, it is one of the earliest sound movies, uh, maybe the 12th or 13th. And once again, if you don't count the jazz singer, which has a couple of musical numbers and maybe six or seven lines of dialogue, I forget the exact amount, a number, it's otherwise just a silent film. Whereas this is a genuine talkie. Uh, they uh, came across this through a trial and error process. They still haven't quite figured out how to make synchronized sound work in an area where, you know, it's affordable for every single movie theater in the United States to put it on a projector and, and screen it for people. Uh, it reminds me a lot of, you know, that scene in Singing in the Rain where you can't make love to a bush. Yeah, uh, certain scenes, there's an orchestra playing off-camera. However, uh, that became prohibitively expensive, and since they, the director and crew didn't know how to, um, you know, place mics or get everything, get everything properly, uh, eventually, to save time, they, uh, they, they, they just had everyone sing over pre-recorded -recor uh, music. Everyone in the cast 
basically just whinged nonstop about how, how they needed to take retake after retake after retake because the technical issues of the film just kept coming at them. Once again, Lena Lamont can't make love to a bush. Uh, there was a silent version made available because not every uh, movie theater in the country had converted the sound equipment yet, although they were well on their way to doing that. Now, there is one scene in this film that uh, was uh, done in a two-strip uh, Technicolor. Uh, however, this was eventually lost, although it did uh, kick off a trend of other black-and-white movies, including one color sequence just to, um, you know, just to just to get the curious through the door. This is hardly unique to the Broadway melody. Um, if you have any idea of film history, you're probably already aware that the uh, Lon Chaney Sr. fan of the opera has a has a color sequence as well, and that film is substantially older. And like I said, this film was very well received. Uh, it made a huge profit, um, and it won Best Picture at the Oscars. Uh, Bessie Love, who played Hank, got an Oscar nomination for it, although she didn't win. Once again, she, she was the closest thing to a genuine human presence in this film. And uh, it got a series of not quite sequels, but sort of spiritually adjacent similar ones that uh, latched onto the title. Uh, there was the Broadway Melody of 1936, the Broadway Melody of 1938, the Broadway Melody of 1940, and the Broadway Rhythm of 1944. Sometimes this film is retroactively known as the Broadway Melody of 1929, just to sort of get into the year and numbering uh, 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 kick. Now, the closest thing to a uh, big movie star in this film uh, was uh, was Anita Page, who was Queenie. Uh, she was considered a gorgeous young ingenue of the silent era, and she was one of the few people to um, continue having a career after sound took off. Uh, I don't know about her presence here. Uh, it's just interesting to look at this person and just... Uh, you know, like wow! By the in the 1920s, this was just considered the uh, epitome of uh, of of uh, celluloid uh, gorgeousness. She was she was a Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor, or so on and so forth. Now, in terms of thematic undercurrents of this film, other than the uh, let's put on a show type of vibe to it, uh, there's the story, which, as I've sort of implied in my plot recap, is very dated and clunky. And, of course, the primitive sound design, which I've already gotten into. Uh, the, the directing is pretty pedestrian, mostly because of uh, technical shortcomings. Now, unlike, you know, uh, the, uh, the Mark of Zorro, which I had covered ar uh, already, Soviet montage and German expressionism had already happened, and filmmaking had already be begun taking on a vocabulary to make it distinct from the art forms that it's based on, you know, radio and uh, live theater. However, because, you know, you couldn't move the camera around because they hadn't sorted out how to make that work with the sound equipment, this still has a very stagey uh, George Méliès vibe where there isn't a single moment where it doesn't seem like you're just sitting in a theater looking at the looking at the people on the stage it's always from that perspective and uh yeah while well, the film did have a director and people and a guy who was in charge of you know making creative decisions on set in terms of the cinematography you might as well have just pointed a tripod at the stage and just left now one thing that happens in this film that isn't unique to this film in any way but i wanted to talk about here is the idea of the uh Beautiful woman as a prize, because 
Eddie Kearns doesn't really do anything to win over Queenie. Uh, He just sort of gets awarded her at the end of the film because, you know, he's he's the protagonist. He's a reasonably decent guy, I guess. Uh, That doesn't come across in the film in any ways, but the, the narrative of the film really wants you to believe that. And it tells you that, you know, Queenie and Eddie have a true love without you know, doing any of the, uh, any of the actual work of, uh, getting you to believe in that, but still he gets one at the end, he gets a lady at the end of the movie. That's just sort of how it happens in a lot of, uh, a lot of stories, filmmaking, especially it just, you know, here's your prize. You earned it, whatever. doesn't matter what she feels. Now we should probably talk a little bit about the music that's featured in the film. Uh, it is one of the earlier co- uh, collaborations between Arthur Freed and Nashiar Brown uh, if you're familiar with Hollywood musicals, you are probably uh, aware that they eventually did the uh, score and uh, uh, songs for uh, uh, for what wound up in Singing in the Rain. They had a very long and productive career after this film. And uh, You Were Meant For Me is the closest thing to a genuine standard in this. Uh, if you go through it, a, a lot of people have covered it during... You know, the vocal era, you know, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Judy Garland, those types of people. Now, the opening title has Give My Regards to Broadway in it, which is, you know, a pretty iconic song. I'm not the I'm not the biggest musical theater nerd, but even I'm familiar with that one. Uh, uh, yeah, George N. Cohen, uh, he, he wrote the song for an earlier show, but, you know, in order to uh, get an instant hit of recognition from, from the audience, it was just sort of shoehorned in there. Now, how this film became successful, I think, is pretty straightforward. Uh, Sound movies were still an amazing new thing, and I think it got to where it wanted. It it, it became financially successful because because of novelty, largely. And, uh, you know, I read a couple of contemporary reviews of the film, and uh, they... they were mostly pretty gentle to it. I think they themselves were just sort of staggered by the magic tricks. Uh, later reviews were a little harsher to it. Once again, just bogging it down for the pedestrian story, which was pedestrian even for its day. You know, the clunky, hammy acting, uh, the weird creepiness of the sub uh, of the subplot, the various aspects of the subtext. It's just uh, this film feels like a museum piece in ways that older films, your Metropolis or Charlie Chaplin, still still feel immediate and and and, uh, and present if if you're willing to meet them on their own terms. So with that in mind, it's probably not surprising that the Broadway melody has been just sort of relegated to. Uh, uh, the junk heap of cinematic curios. That about wraps things up for everything I wanted to talk about in this one. As usual, when I don't have a co-host, there isn't as much to say. If uh, this episode is received well, I will bring out a couple of other forgotten Best Picture winners and uh, and try to do a postmortem on them. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.